Recently, I went on a working trip through regional New South Wales, visiting towns in the Central West. My colleague, an Indigenous health lawyer and former nurse, Linda Crawford, joined me on the trip, and she will host this episode of Law Matters, looking at the many difficult challenges Indigenous communities face and how the law can help. I hope you enjoy this episode. I acknowledge that this podcast is being hosted from the lands of the Awabakal and Waramai peoples. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all work and listen from. Hi, I'm Linda Crawford. My Indigenous heritage is from my mother, who is a Dungadi Gumbaga woman, who lives down the south coast of New South Wales and is an elder in and around the Rick Bay community. Before I became a solicitor, I was a nurse and midwife, so I've seen firsthand how the medical system can treat Indigenous people. This became apparent to me when I worked as a midwife in Queensland, when I would see first-time Indigenous mums coming in to have their baby, having never experienced a hospital before. Unless those caring for such women are aware of the various cultural issues regarding things like women's business, as well as a whole raft of other issues... The whole experience for these women could be very traumatic. Today I want to talk about dealing with medical negligence from an Indigenous perspective and to help me with that is nurse, teacher, lecturer and researcher Juanita Sherwood. Juanita is currently a Professor of Australian Indigenous Education at the University of Technology in Sydney. Juanita, thanks for joining me on Law Matters. Tell me a bit about the work you're doing now. I'm still working in health. I work at UTS and I'm working in Jambana and I'm a professor in Indigenous health education and research. And I am still a registered nurse um, and a member of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives and remain active in the health and research sector and definitely in this area of negligence towards our people in in the healthcare sector. Well, broadly speaking, from your perspective, are Indigenous patients treated differently in our medical system? And if so, how? Well, yes, um, definitely. We know that there are, our people have been treated badly for a very long time. We didn't have access to healthcare right up until probably the late, 70s in New South Wales, and healthcare has been begrudgingly provided, you know, in on reserves and missions by non-professionals. Um, we were seen in the public health sector as contributing to communicable diseases that were were definitely given to us in the first place by the colonisers that arrived on our shores. It's really important, I guess, to acknowledge that we were probably the healthiest First Nation peoples in the in the world. When um, Cook arrived on our shores, he and his people remarked on just how healthy and well we were. We had great tucker, great food. We looked after ourselves and colonial tenure, genocide, massacres, racism, discrimination and um, segregation ensured that uh, and, you know, being rationed on really poor diets such as white flour, sugar, tea, 
minimal amounts of protein, we're going to have a major impact on our health and well-being. And so studies were done in Queensland where we our, our children were considered highly malnourished and lots of children and and adults died due to starvation, which was part of the way we were in, not cared for in, in um, missions and reserves and, and even on um, properties, etc. So access to good nutrition, as we all know today, is really critical to health and well-being. And being starved of a basic nutritional um, diet ensured that our health and well-being and the trauma that occurred, um, intergenerational trauma has important psychological impacts, but also really important physiological impacts that continue to reverberate down the generations. And we know through research over the last 40 or 50 years that, you know, we pass down the trauma through our genes onto our, through our DNA from generation to generation. So not only does, you know, what's happened yesterday impact on our health and well-being, but what happened two generations ago continues to contribute to the way our body physiologically reacts to what's going on today. As you know, I, like you, was a registered nurse and midwife, and more recently as a medical negligence lawyer, uh, I've seen many instances where the care and treatment of Indigenous people was less than ideal from a cultural perspective. Uh, from a legal perspective, treatment and care fell below the standard we would say is acceptable, not only from the medical standard but culturally. Uh, we at Catherine Henry Lawyers are currently representing many Indigenous clients and just recently I've had the opportunity to think about how to have some of those clients assessed in a culturally appropriate way by a particular expert. Um, it's been interesting because the act for which we're required to have clients assessed when we're, we bring medical negligence claims against various health professionals, it, it doesn't expressly allow for a cultural standard, if you like. So it's been challenging but interesting to work out how to brief those particular experts to assess our clients in a culturally appropriate way. And I was just wondering, do you have any similar experiences in the type of work that, that you do? I mean, I understand you're an academic, but uh, given your wide range of experience, um, do you have similar experiences? Yeah, look, um, definitely. And I'm a, a member and um, a co-contributor to an organisation called the National Partner for, Partnership for Justice Health. And we have been supporting our people who have, you know, either died due to poor health care in health settings and in prison settings. So we, we know and we are working along and trying to support families in this space. So similarly to the work you're doing, and I think probably what is worthwhile thinking about utilising is cultural safety. Cultural safety has now been legislated in Queensland and in other states and territories, and it's an expectation of um, health professionals that they undertake cultural safety, safety training and that cultural safety is 
also part of their approach to First Nations people's healthcare. Aboriginal clients can tell you whether they feel safe or not. Now, as soon as you walk into a casualty department and people know whether they're going to be treated well or they're not, there's a lot of knowledge and, and experience of being treated badly and people know as soon as they have contact and that's why it is important that you build the trust because people have had ongoing experiences and they can smell racism a mile away and I think that's really critical. So when people say that they've been treated and discriminated, you have to trust that because they know. And it's many non-Indigenous people who go, oh, no, I wasn't being racist. They don't know what racism is necessarily. They don't understand that they are being racist in ways. And so many times I've been told, oh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't meaning that. Well, unfortunately, what you did do impacted on the well-being of that client that came in to see you. And, you know, as soon as you said, blah, 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 immediately that person felt unsafe. Can I trust this medical professional? No, I can't because right away they've decided that I'm a problem. Another really critical point that I think is really useful for you is knowing do your clients know their health rights? Now, over back in, I think it's 2019, the Commonwealth developed a protocol on health, you know, knowing that you have right you have the right to access a high standard of healthcare that is free from racism. That's something that the Health Commission has put out. And those the, those issues are around access, health services and treatment that meets you or your mob's needs. And so that straight away, there's a point of contention that you can use to say, well, that didn't happen. Safety is the next point, um, cultural safety and high quality care. The next point is respect, being treated with respect, listened to and have your culture, beliefs and choices respected. Now, this is for all Australians. So every Australian has the right to have their culture respected and enabled for their treatment, etc. Having information, access to information, clear, you know, plain English, not medical jargon, which um, is often used and it undermines you know, a relationship building, communication and people understanding, partnerships, giving feedback and privacy. Now, racism is against the law and I think this is a really another point of contention that you can utilise in saying this was racially discriminatory. And the, the level of racism is unfortunately and it is part of the way people are educated to provide healthcare to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because we are, as you said right from the beginning, there is this apparent way that people have been taught that we are the problem, not that the issues and um, health um, consequences of the way we've been treated. We're seen as high risk and that's built into the language, the systemic and institutional language that's talked about us and utilised. And so that becomes part of oh, we've got, you know, we've got to do extra work for these people because they don't look after themselves. Well, actually, we have done everything we can to look after ourselves. It's been the way we've been treated for the last 230 years that undermines our health and well-being. Mm, yeah, look, you make some fantastic points, which actually segues nicely into some matters that I'm going to be talking about a bit later. But before that, do you put 
this down to systemic racism or, or what does that belief system look like that's creating another injustice for Indigenous people in Australia today? Well, I think it's personal, systemic and institutional racism. So it's many levels of racism. People don't like talking about racism. They hate it. You know, like, you know, it shames them and makes them angry and they try and say, no, it's not happening. But it is happening. It's actually taught a really critical point of, you know, the Australian education system is that we're all colonised. We're told a lot of untruths. And I just saw it this morning on the ABC, an actor was saying, you know, I grew up in Australia, I came back to Australia and I'm learning about a history that I was never taught. I was never learnt about our First Nation people, the consequences of what, what white Australia did to black Australia is not taught and people don't get that. So they are still quite irrational about how they deal with the truth And the truth-telling is really vital to this story for you and for me in the health scenario. Also, we um, have a term called deficit discourse. And deficit discourse is a colonial tool that doctors and nurses and um, DCJ workers and a whole lot of people that work in the white public service mainstream agenda have created, you know, we are the problem. And anything that they see as high risk, which is risk that they've built around their knowledge systems, their ways of thinking around us. So they've been problematizing us for the last 230 years. And anything that we do that is not part of their culture is considered to be a problem. And we see that really critically in in all health arenas, but probably the most terrifying for many Aboriginal women is in the birthing suite where Aboriginal women go to have their babies and they're terrified about going to have a baby because they know that this is a site where our children get taken from them because a midwife has decided that, you know, she didn't like the way that Aboriginal client talked throughout the labour or that experience. And this is making, you know, it it's a turn-off to go and have antenatal care. It's a turn-off to go and do anything with midwives when women know that this could be an outcome of their birthing process. The numbers of our children being removed in now uh, is excelling. Every year it gets worse. And it's because agencies such as DCJ continue to have a deficit discourse when it comes to we are the problem. They view us as a problem. They don't see when we're doing fantastic things for our family. They just want to see or maybe they don't want to see, but all they gauge is the negatives. And the negatives are poverty. Now, why are we poor? There's 200 years of reasons for why we are poor and we've had everything taken from us. Um, Why do we not have opportunities educationally or why don't we have a big enough house to house us all? All of those things are part of the colonial tenure that has contributed to those issues. But they're the things that are used to blame us. Now, birthing centres are definitely sites of child removal. And unfortunately, women are terrified about that. And if that's not the case, then they have to 
travel. There's um, women we're working with up in the top end in the Territory who have to travel 13 hours to get to the nearest hospital. They have to sit around and wait for a month before they have their babies away from their family, their friends, food, access, like basic, basic things. This is what our people have to deal with that others don't. So there's a whole lot of unlearning and re-education that is required in the healthcare sector. If I can just pick up on some of the things you've said, as a lawyer, I help families who believe they've had a wrongdoing within the medical system. Um, I don't just work with Indigenous families, but the problems we see with our medical system, especially in rural and remote areas, is is compounded for Indigenous families generally because of the pre-existing beliefs from the medical staff and from society in general. Catherine Henry and I recently did a road trip to Western New South Wales to meet a number of Indigenous clients in various areas whom we were representing in a number of different claims. Apart from some of the harrowing stories we heard about the healthcare provided to our clients, the overwhelming feedback we received from each of them, each group, was thank you for believing in us and taking on our case. And Catherine and I felt really excited about getting to work to achieve good outcomes for these clients. I mean, to receive such heartfelt gratitude from people who've endured more discrimination than most uh, really impacted on us. It was important for us to to bring that back and, and to get to work straight away. And so just from, just from that, Juanita, do we need to hold our medical practitioners to account more or Absolutely. is it not as simplistic as that? I think there's many measures, but I think holding our medical practitioners and our nurses and all our health professionals to account is vital and holding our universities to account to ensure that they're educating our next you know, level of health professionals in a way that is culturally safe and respectful to our people and not promoting high risk, you know, high problematizing of our people. We, we need to shift that agenda. And I have to say, I mean, what have I been doing in the last 40 years of working in healthcare? I've been trying to work at addressing these issues through, you know, an academic perspective, through a research perspective. And really, we still have a colonial health system that targets our people. That is the problem. We need to decolonise that health system. We need to um, support our community-controlled health organisations to have a greater role in determining what we're saying. And I, I totally agree with you. Out in the West, I've worked in Broken Hill. I've worked in um, the whole of the far West. Um, I've worked in Bathurst and, and worked with AMSs throughout the Western area. And our people are treated really badly. We we do not. I mean, I, I laugh when I hear the the West talk about oh we we we're just going to continue to do the, what we're doing for the Nova because we're doing great work. Well, we're not. You know, our people are dying left, right, and centre in health settings, and they die 10, 15 years young. I mean, remote health anyway. You die ten years earlier than a person in an urban area. But you tackle you top that up with being a First Nations person. And you die, you know, another 10 years earlier than that because of the lack of real care. Um, I work on a project with kids um, with hearing loss 
And it takes, you know, for them to have surgery to correct or to improve their hearing, it's a two-year waiting list. And a two-year waiting list without being able to hear has such dramatic impacts on your learning opportunities. And if you are, you know, two years behind in your learning, that's going to have major implications on your education system. You're going to give up. And I've seen this. I mean, I worked as a child and family health nurse in Redfern, women's health nurse out at Broken Hill and Far West. I've watched what happens when we do not provide the basic health care our communities need. And our kids get angry. They get frustrated. People blame them for their hearing losses. They blame them for not being able to communicate what's going on. And we see high-risk behaviour as a result, understandably, because they're frustrated and they're cranky that they're not being they're not being valued, they're not being responded to, they're not being given a fair go. And I think that's a really critical part. Not not only does you know is it a health issue, but it's a justice issue and it's a youth justice issue. Mm. Well, that's a lot of information. Really important points. How do you see the situation improving, um, and what needs to happen? I know you touched on some of that, but can you expand a little bit more? We need for government to actually seriously recognise that you know, healthcare is killing our people. We have got many cases and I'm sure you've got many cases and you're going to be able to, you know, look at those to show where there is significant negligence due to racism. We need to highlight that. We need to demonstrate that. Black lives do matter and they really are critical and we need to be telling this story. And I think we need to do more exposing of this. We don't hide it in accounts, which we continue to do in this country. We've got to really build this story. And the work you're doing, the work that the Partnership for Justice Health, which is an Indigenous organisation trying to raise concerns. We went to Parliament last year to try and get ministers aware of the need to provide support to communities. We need to back our communities to get inquiries into the deaths that happen in health settings and in prison settings, and we know we need to be charging people for the negligence and the deaths that result from our people being treated abysmally. I read uh, an ABC article recently about the recent uh, budget that the Aboriginal legal services at various remote and regional uh, ALSs are freezing their services because they're, they're not receiving the, the money that they asked to receive, which brings me back to an important point, and that's about trust. And in my work, uh, I understand that there's a lot of good reasons for Indigenous families not to trust lawyers and health workers. Uh, and one of the things that I do when I meet a new family uh, is I work on establishing trust. Um, it's very important when first engaging with clients, and especially Indigenous clients who have suffered injuries as a result of medical negligence, to let them tell their story at their own pace. Uh, often in lawyers, we just want to get straight to the point, uh, but you can't, you can't really, you can't do that with somebody who's suffered uh, trauma. And as, as I mentioned earlier, most, if not all of our Indigenous clients, I'll go out on a limb and I'll say all, and, I, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Juanita, but um, of our Indigenous clients have experienced the legal system in a negative way, either personally themselves or through family and community. 
um, while the lawyers, we know that our role in medical negligence law is not punitive. It's vitally important that we create an atmosphere of trust very early with Indigenous clients, having regard to what you've been speaking about the whole time, Australia's systemic cultural inequity in the legal system for Indigenous Australians. So in the work that I do, time and understanding is paramount. It's important when engaging Indigenous clients and also understanding the broader nature of community and family who are part of whatever we're talking to these clients about. So just picking up on that, Juanita, how do you think people who are genuinely looking to help and there are people genuinely looking to help, can establish trust despite all the wrongdoings that have gone before. Well, I guess it's linking up with people who are doing good, like yourself and other organisations. There's, you know, the, um, there's a justice program at UTS where um, I work with, and I think you know, I know you've been in contact with George Newhouse, and he's another um, peer in Craig Longman and. Larissa Morant, they're all lawyers that um, are, are, are good people to connect with, to, you know, let community know that you're working with. And trust is really important, you're right. And trust is important in building relationships right from the beginning. And it's critical that you don't you go in there and you don't talk jargon straight up. Plain English communities, connecting with, you know, everyone in the community not just um, pigeonholing one or two people, and listening. The vital thing that many people really fail to do is listen to us. I mean, that we've had 230 years of no one listening and not responding to our needs. And I think, you know, as lawyers, yes, you're right. You, you, you've, you're trying to get people's points down. You're trying to build that language into the language that the legal system wants. But we actually have to say to the legal system, hey, you're meant to be working for the people. That's what you're meant to be doing. And we've got to make sure that we communicate in a way that it is meaningful to the people we're working with so that they feel that they have justice in this space as well. It's You don't need to be doubling the injustice on top of the health issue through the justice system, which we know is anti Indigenous ways of doing business, but the system's got to become a bit more friendly. And it has, you know, we, we pay taxes for that to occur. Um, and we should have a voice in this legislation. And I know uh, I'm, I'm going to be working on a project with other First Nation nurses to look at how we actually inform um, the justice system around how nursing should be far more, you know, be safer in this space. Mm. We've all got roles to play in this and, and we've just got to keep pushing and I think I'm really happy to meet you and that you are working in this space. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to talk loud <laughs> and often and get our agenda out there. But, um, yep, building respect is vital Communicating in plain English is vital and making sure that you don't cease a relationship as soon as it's over. Mm. What's really critical is that you build relationships with your clients who will extend your your link into the community. You will grow and connect further through the people that you've worked through. That's how you grow trust. That's a really important point, actually. I'll just pick up on that before I move on. And that is... Uh, 
one of the families who contacted us about a potential medical negligence claim, we weren't sure on the information provided whether or not it was something we could actually help with. But we decided, Catherine and I, that we would visit the family in any event on our Western road trip uh, because we thought it was important that if we came to the view that we couldn't help them, that we met them and told them that in any event. Uh, But as it turns out, we can. So it was really worthwhile and fruitful meeting them. So, Juanita, you're at UTS now, and I'm sure you see many bright students, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, who are the future. How is the conversation changing? Look, it comes and goes, you know. It's politically driven, as you would know. We need more First Nation academics in the space educating people around health and law. Um, We're still very minimal in the system, and we have our peers who go, oh, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to teach this. I'm not sure. I don't feel comfortable. So we we need a lot of us back in the system to start shifting this agenda. We do need the academy to shift its agenda. We need peak bodies like Royal College of Physicians. We need um, nursing bodies. We need, and we've just had the deans of nursing across this country apologise for their racism towards our people. We need to be annotating and and collating that, you know, health has done a lot of harm and it's time to flip and shift that agenda and make a difference. And that requires everyone doing some truth-telling in this space. Well, Juanita Sherwood, thank you for joining me on the Law Matters podcast today and your insights. Um, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this important episode of Law Matters, looking at Indigenous matters and where the law can help. Thanks to Senior Associate in Health Law, Linda Crawford, for hosting. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and if you'd like to discuss the needs of your Indigenous community further, please give my team a call. This podcast was produced by Liz Clarkson of Pod and Pen Productions and Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Sound engineering by Sawtooth Studios. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. You can subscribe to Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers wherever you get your podcasts.